Hello, this is the Journal of American History podcast for fall 2018. My name is Benjamin Urban, and I am the executive editor of the Journal of American History. On today's episode, we're going to learn more about the Fourth World Conference on Women, known more commonly as the Beijing Women's Conference, which convened in China in September 1995. We have three very special guests joining us today, and it is my privilege to introduce them now. Our guest host, Dr. Robin C. Spencer, is an associate professor of history at Lehman College of the City University of New York. She is presently a visiting endowed chair in women and gender studies and visiting associate professor of history at Brooklyn College. Dr. Spencer's first book, The Revolution Has Come, Black Power, Gender, and the Black Panther Party, was published by Duke University Press in 2016. She is now working on a history of black liberation politics and public opposition to the war in Vietnam. Her research has garnered fellowship support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, as well as from the American Council of Learned Societies. Dr. Spencer is also now researching a book about the activism of Angela Davis. On today's episode, Dr. Spencer will interview Dr. Lisa Levenstein, whose article, A Social Movement for a Global Age, U.S. Feminism and the Beijing Women's Conference of 1995, appears in the September 2018 issue of the Journal of American History. Dr. Levenstein is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. She is the author of A Movement Without Marches, African-American Women, and the Politics of Poverty in Postwar Philadelphia, which won the Kenneth Jackson Book Award from the Urban History Association. Her current project, When Feminism Went Viral, the U.S. Women's Movement in the 1990s and Beyond, has earned fellowship awards from the American Philosophical Society, the National Humanities Center, and the American Council of Learned Societies. It is now under contract with Basic Books. Last, but certainly not least, we are very pleased to welcome Professor Loretta Ross to the JAH podcast. Professor Ross is a visiting professor of practice in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. She is also the co-founder and past national coordinator of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Professor Ross has authored three books. She has co-authored Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice, co-authored Reproductive Justice and Introduction, and co-edited Radical Reproductive Justice. Her first book, Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice, claimed the Myers Outstanding Book Award from the Gustavus Myers Center for the Study of Bigotry and Human Rights. She has recently been honored by the National Women's Health Network and the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Network for her advocacy for the reproductive rights of women, especially women of color. Even more exciting for purposes of our conversation today is that Ross actually attended the Beijing Women's Conference in 1995, so she brings a wealth of personal experience to this conversation. What an honor and what fun it will be to listen in. Dr. Spencer. In 1995, 8,000 U.S. activists traveled to China, making up the largest and most racially diverse group of Americans to ever attend a women's conference. Lisa, how did you get interested in the Beijing Conference? Thanks so much for um, being here, Robin, and thank you also for your own wonderful work on women. And your model um, of work in the community has really been inspirational to me, so it's certainly an honor that you're spending this time discussing my article, and I appreciate you taking this time. How did I get interested in the Beijing Conference? I really didn't know much about it. As a scholar of social movements and of marginalized women, it really never occurred to me that the conference would be of much interest. But about eight years or so ago, I came across an article and it described all of the women of color feminists who attended the conference. Around 8,000 Americans 
probably between 1,500 and 2,000 were women of color. And that really piqued my interest. How did they all get to Beijing? Why did they go? What happened to them there? And then I began to learn about the NGO forums associated with UN conferences that feminists around the world turned into really huge convenings in which they shared strategies with each other, formed networks, and also engaged in activism. So when I learned about this aspect of the conference that was so different from what the headlines were in the press, the historian and me got very interested and I began to research. Oh, wonderful to hear. And the result was this fabulous article on social movements for a global age. We're also lucky enough to have Loretta Ross on the line with us who attended the Beijing conference. So Loretta, I just wanted to bring you in at this moment and ask you to describe what you were doing in your professional career at the time. Why did you go to the Beijing conference? Well, I had been involved in the World Decade for Women for quite a while. Of course, the first women's conference sponsored by the UN had been in Mexico City in 1975. The second was in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1980 and Nairobi in 1985. I attended the Copenhagen conference and really was outraged by the low representation of African-American women there. And there was a crucial vote in Copenhagen about whether or not to seat the South African delegation that was all white. And we were outraged as black women fighting apartheid at the time. And so I committed there to organizing to ensure greater participation of women of color during the decade activities. So we took 1,100 black women to Nairobi, and then we continued to organize for Beijing. And it was always to ensure that the diverse perspectives of feminists from the U.S. were represented, that it wasn't just, again, white women speaking for us, but that we were there to speak for ourselves. And so I actually took a hiatus from a couple of jobs every time one of those conferences was coming about. But particularly in 1995, I was doing anti-Klan work, monitoring hate groups and the militia and things like that. So I wasn't actually at a women's organization at the time, but an intersectional analysis says that all of this is our work. So... That's how I got to Beijing, because I had done more than a decade of organizing in order to encourage women of color to participate in these global processes. That's amazing. I remember, Loretta, that I met you around that time when you were doing the anti-Klan work in that time period. I wanted to ask Lisa about just some of the major trends in U.S. feminism that really coalesced and came together in the 1990s that you identify in the article. You talk about professionalization, internationalization, online activism, and as Loretta noted, the increased emphasis on the thought and action of women of color and others advocating for marginalized groups. Can you give us a sense of each of these, beginning with professionalization? What do you mean when you say professionalization as a major trend in U.S. feminism in the 1990s? So one of the first things I puzzled over when I started my research was how so many U.S. activists, particularly grassroots activists working in poor communities, managed to get the money to go. People stayed for, you know, often a week in China. And I soon I began to realize that it was really a reflection of the way that even at the grassroots, U.S. feminism was becoming a professionalized movement. And by professionalized, 
I don't mean that this was a bunch of people walking around suits in offices, in high rises, downtowns, in cities across the nation or something like that. But what I mean is that growing numbers were not just doing feminist work in their spare time. They were making a living in some way or another, often not very much money, but they were making a living doing work for the movement. And this was true of people working in small grassroots local organizations, as well as larger nonprofits and social service agencies. People have named this trend the growth of the nonprofit industrial complex. It refers to the ways that growing numbers of activists relied on grants from government or more often philanthropic foundations and donors to fuel their work. This wasn't just happening to feminism. We see it in other social movements as well in this period. But women of color feminists have been pioneers in critiquing this trend, asking what it does to a movement when activists are constantly worried about getting money, about grant writing, and about pleasing funders. And so I think it's important to remember that women of color have led the way in questioning the impact of funding on the movement because they have also been affected by it as others have, albeit in very different ways. And Loretta, um, you've had a lot to say about the impact of money on the movement. In fact, you've been a leader in criticizing foundations and the way that they give money to different groups. And I've used your writings and analysis in our conversations in my own work about this. I would love to hear your comments on this growth of professionalization? Well, professionalization is one of those things that can be mean many things to different people. When I first started as a feminist activist, we weren't paid. We were sleeping in church basements if we had to go anywhere and hoping that churches would let us use meeting rooms and things like that. And so we felt as part of our mission to obtain funding so that people could actually get paid for the work that they were doing for free and didn't have to choose between keeping their lights on or going to an organizing meeting. I mean, it was an unsustainable model that really exploited people's willingness to do social change work while there were a whole lot of people getting paid for doing the wrong thing. We wanted people to get paid for doing the right thing. And so professionalization means something different when you have a trajectory like I have. But our relationship with foundations was always one fraught with tensions because we certainly appreciated the support that they finally came forth and offered. But we also had to be resistant to their attempts to control our mouths and our agendas. I remember one foundation that helped us out to do the work and to go to these international conferences also admonished us that we couldn't use the phrase population control in one of our newsletters because Mm -hmm. that would shine an unflattering light on funding that they had done previously, let's say in the 1950s, that they didn't want to be reminded of. So we had to sequester our money that paid for the newsletter and ensure that that foundation's money didn't pay for our newsletter. So we didn't stop saying population control. We just (laughs) had to navigate the relationship with these foundations in a way that protected our integrity and our dignity, yet achieved the goals that we were trying to achieve. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think the underground experience is so complex, right? On the one hand, as you mentioned, people need the resources so that they're not exploited. 
On the other hand, those resources oftentimes come with their own strings, which can be exploitative. So the negotiation of that, I think, is a key part of what women had to negotiate in that time period. That's why simplistic analyses of who's a professional, who's not, who's being exploited by a foundation, who's not. We actually don't like those kinds of binary categories that I know sometimes get attached after the fact when people haven't actually spoken to and delved into why we do what we do and make the choices that we make. Yes, I think it's so important that people inside of movements have the possibility and the platform to tell their own experiences and to speak them into the historical record. So I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But I want to think about just the global in this time period, right? The internationalization of U.S. feminism in the early 1990s. Now, at least in the article, that's another key intervention that you're making. What did you discover about that? And how does Beijing fit into this longer pattern? Loretta talked about going to several conferences before Beijing, for example. Right. I want to make it clear that I'm not saying that internationalization began in the 1990s. Thank you for helping me to do that here, Robin, and also you, Loretta. There's been wonderful, both I've learned this through my interviews, and also there's been wonderful scholarship on the transnational dimensions of U.S. feminism in earlier period, of course, including wonderful work by you, Robin. But I do think that in the 90s, feminist activism became more international than ever before. And I think that happened in two ways. One is that more activists whose work focused on U.S. problems began to include a global dimension to what they did, whether that was networking with people from other countries, learning about strategies people used elsewhere, and or seeing if there were ways to kind of join forces with people in other places on common goals. That's one of the ways, integrating global perspective, a global dimension into U.S.-based work. The other way that the movement became more international was the growth, not the beginning, but the growth due to the support of foundations who were very in support of internationalization, the significant growth of an entire wing of the U.S. movement that focused on the international arena and particularly the U.N. So this network grew exponentially in the 1990s. If you know of people like Charlotte Bunch, for example, she's one of the most well-known figures in this wing of the U.S. movement. And they participated in global feminist networks that tried to change the policies and practices of the UN and other international institutions. Both of these, both on earlier efforts, but I think really took off in the 1990s in the dimension of activism that happened, the amount that was going on, the way that foundations got behind it, made it a kind of new moment, even as they were building on these longer histories. I also want to speak up because it was U.S. foreign policy that springboarded our activism. We weren't doing global activism in a savior mentality, let's go help the poor women of Indonesia or whatever. It was because our country was aggressively intervening in countries, destabilizing democracies, providing secret armies to overthrow governments. Most of the time when we went overseas, the women we met would say, go home and stop your country's aggression against us. 
more so than anything else we need from you is a change in U.S. policy towards my country. And so we had a moral obligation to be transnational in our perspective, but local in our activism, because no one can change U.S. policy except those of us in the U.S. And so it wasn't a humanitarian outreach kind of thing. Let's go save the poor brown women from the poor brown men. It was how can we create the conditions by changing U.S. policy so that people have better chance of Mm self-determination. Thank you so much for that, Loretta. And one of the things that I found really interesting The same way that people have talked about engagement in the civil rights movement in the bringing some people to feminism in the 1950s and 1970s, I found that for many of the activists of the 1990s, the struggle against apartheid was an absolutely critical dimension that fueled their activism. That struggle was very important for many of the activists that I've spoken with and that I've read about. Well, the U.S. government was, at the time, at the height of the South African struggle, when we started the arrest at the South African embassy in Washington, D.C., the Free South Africa movement, had a formal policy of what they call constructive engagement. And they were actively supporting the apartheid government, saying that we should sit back and let incremental change happen. Well, those of us familiar with the civil rights movement knew incremental change was not a strategy for justice. And so we were compelled to say, no, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, we're not going to accept this as representing the policy, the engagement that we want in defeating apartheid. And so we had to take it on as an activist, as a policy, as changing the posture of our government in terms of its foreign policy objectives. It was a broad campaign, but it was driven out of our determination to learn from the civil rights movement that you've documented, Robin, and say that the way we deconstructed Jim Crow in America has to be applied to how you deconstruct apartheid in South Africa. Incremental change is insufficient. But I have to say, I was actually surprised with the rapidity with which the apartheid state crumbled because of global pressure and what the domestic South African activists were doing. I did not expect to see Mandela walk out of jail. I really did not expect to participate in helping him get elected. I just didn't know how powerful we actually are until I had a chance to monitor those elections. That is such a critical intervention, Loretta, because you're giving us a blueprint and a big picture of what feminist concerns were and what women's activism looked like at a time where oftentimes that is hidden. My newer work is looking at women who participated in the movement against the Vietnam War. And for many, you know, the same people who participated in the anti-Vietnam War movement, who were leading women activists and feminists like Fran Beale and like Gwen Patton and others, would go on to participate in other anti-imperialist struggles um, and, of course, play a role in the movement against apartheid in South Africa. I wanted to turn our attention to the online activism 
right? This is a podcast. Different technological forms have emerged for people to gain information, to use information, to network. And sometimes those forms are increasingly questioned and criticized in terms of the role and space that they play in activist circles. Are they bringing us together? Are they pushing us apart? Is a little bit of both. What did you see when you were looking at how online activism played a role in the time period of your article, Lisa? 1995 was the cusp, really, of the digital revolution. So it was a really important moment in the origins of what we today call online feminism. And I was struck by how many of these debates that you mentioned, Robin, people had an inkling, even at this time, that these were going to be the issues that would surface over time. There were two, one about the ways that it would both bring us together, but also had potential to divide us. And also, Another interesting line of thought that people were following at the time that is still around today as well is this idea of the digital divide, that if we embraced online activism, if certain people embraced online activism, people who did not have access to those tools would get left out of conversations and new initiatives. These ideas and concerns were present from the very beginning. And a significant moment in the beginning is the Beijing conference because many U.S. feminists and feminists from around the world, their first time getting online was either at the conference or in preparation for it. So there were listservs that sprung up about the event and because people couldn't find information about it anywhere else, they were motivated to figure out how to join a listserv, how to get on, what this was about. And these listservs started publicizing and promoting a lot of information, whether it was about registration or about the politics of the conference that were happening beforehand. There were people threatening to boycott, all kinds of intrigue about the conference itself that were fought, that was followed and reported on in these on these listservs and people were starting to engage in conversation about it. What was most interesting to me was that there was a large group of feminist technology specialists from around the world who realized very early on that this was going to be a kind of critical moment for the movement and they worked to find ways to get people connected online. And I love the photo in the article of the computer center at the NGO forum. The technology activists made the decision that the center would be staffed entirely by women to kind of push back on the idea that tech was a male thing. And they found women who were technology girls from all over the world speaking so many different languages to do this work. And they were helping to get people on email. They were helping to connect people to listservs. And also this was, they were posting important documents from the conference online, not like we know this to be. It wasn't the World Wide Web as we know it, but they were making these documents accessible both for people at the computer center at the conference, but also people following from around the world. They even made a rudimentary podcast that people could listen to and they Next to it, they put the script. So for people who didn't have audio yet, you could read the script of what was happening. And because people who were engaged in this, the feminists who were engaged in this were really aware of the disparities, the digital divide, they had a kind of mantra that they used, which was they worked on using tools that as many people as possible had access to rather than the most kind of newfangled ones. So we saw this really in the preparations for the conference when even though some people started to have email, they also still used the fax machine because that was much more widely used. I could also add that the search towards technology and the World Conferences for Women had actually started in 
the preparation for the 1980 conference. I want to bring in the name of Andre Norris and the International Women's Tribune Center. But Henri, I'm bringing yeah. up because she had a project that actually used cables running across the Atlantic Ocean to broadcast in live time, what was happening in Copenhagen back to audiences in the United States. And we organized women to go to local colleges so that they could participate in live time in the Copenhagen conference. So this was way before email or anything. I remember the fight Henri, Henri had to actually get access to those cables running under the ocean <laughs> so that yeah. we could do that. And the Women's Tribune Center really came up with this wonderful phrase, if it's not appropriate for women, it's not appropriate. And mm. that guided us to say, we have to make this technology available, appropriate, and adaptable to the lived circumstances in which women see their lives. And so Beijing was a crescendo, but not a beginning, because we had always knew that we would never control the mass media in order to get our messages out. So we always had to find alternative pathways for connecting women transnationally directly. Thank you for that, Loretta. And the historian Jocelyn Alcat has an article about the 1975 conference in Mexico. It's called Empires of Information or some title like that. And so I love this. The non-historian is bringing in even earlier history. This is wonderful. (laughs) Well, when you live the history, you can remember it. And when you write about it, you can only go on what people tell you. (laughs) This is true. Now, speaking of living the history and writing the history, it seems to me that this article is making so many key interventions. I wanted to ask, how does your work fit into the larger scholarly literature? Yeah, one of the wonderful and also challenging aspects of working on the 1990s is there isn't a huge literature that is addressing this period in particular. Most of the work on feminism in this period is not historical, it's more sociological, political scientist, or just the words of the activists at the time. Most of it has focused on what people have called the third wave. Young feminists, the way they're characterized often is very interested in sexual self-determination, the fluidity of identity, gender, and race, and sexuality. This is a wonderful literature, but it's a narrow slice. People who have been working in the field also, the idea of feminist waves has also come under a lot of critique by feminist historians. So the idea of the third wave is something that we talk about it in terms of the people who self-identified as that, but in terms of understanding of movement, the wave metaphor has been largely thought of as being maybe more of a hindrance than a help in terms of how we conceptualize movements historically. So I see my work really building on, though, the incredibly generative historical scholarship on feminism in earlier periods and seeing the ways that the feminists of the 90s were both building on, but also at times really accelerating um, trends that Loretta has really shown us began earlier. I think one of the important new dimensions that maybe we haven't discussed quite yet in all of its entirety is first the real prominence of women of color feminism in the movement. And now the scholarship has shown that women of color have been feminists as long as white women have. You know, it's never been 
one or the other or one in imitation of the other, but that they have just as long a history and just as deep roots. I think what we see in the 1990s is a real acceleration of their activism in part, as Loretta has noted, but because foundations increasingly began to kind of get it in a certain kind of way and began to offer more groups funding, but also because of their real flourishing of independent institutions, including Sister Song, which Loretta directed. And as women of color built their own independent sources of power, they were able to engage in deeper work in their own communities, spread their messages in public, and then have more leverage in negotiating with white feminists. Loretta, maybe you could talk about the three marches for women's lives, you were able to amass power and exert influence over the broader movement. Well, I don't want to center the foundations in this conversation, but I do want to make one observation. One of the ironies of their increased funding for our global activism was that it wasn't accompanied by real increased funding so that we could bring Beijing home, so that we could apply what we learned from our sisters in the global south to really affecting change in the U.S. And so we could always take these very expensive trips and become political tourists in other countries, but then we couldn't get the funds to actually implement things once we got home. So that needs to be pointed out, that it was not about putting money into changing U.S. foreign policy. It really was about putting money into providing us an opportunity to build a global network, which was very useful, but not a full support that we actually needed. Now, women of color have always brought an intersectional analysis to feminism ever since Sojourner Truth stood up and said, ain't I a woman? <laughs> so this is what we do and this is what we are. I personally took exception to the third wave disciplining of our struggle because it really was not accurate. It was something conceptualized, almost media-driven, but the media never did a good job of describing what was happening on the ground in the women's movement. And so we had to take it with a grain of salt. And I'm sorry that so many people bought into that media-driven narrative because the number of women of color in general and black women I've had to persuade that feminism is not a white women's issue is driven by those kinds of media narratives. Mm -hmm. And it makes us not be able to own our legacy, the things that we did to contour the movement. I mean, black women helped start the anti-rape movement, but you wouldn't know that from the media narratives at the time. The first sexual harassment cases, one in court, were by black women. The right to defend ourselves when we're being raped, to, to kill our abusers. These were cases of black, brown, and Latino women that simply weren't in the mainstream media. And so we've always had an impact on the direction of the women's movement, but sometimes we were leaders without followers because there wasn't a critical mass of women of color who understood the importance of their role in the movement and their legacy and contributions. And of course, the Now Marches were an example of that. When I was working at Now and trying to organize women to go to the first abortion rights march, which was in 1986, I kept getting this wall of silence. We don't think we want to march for abortion. Isn't that a white woman's issue? We don't know if we want to work with those white organizations. They haven't handled their racism. All of that has a grain of truth in it. But as we can see, 
when restrictions on abortion take place, like with the Hyde Amendment, it has a disproportional impact on women of color who are more likely to be economically challenged. And so we've had to recover our legacy. I'm probably the most undisciplined pseudo-historian in the world because I started writing uh, essays on Black women and abortion because I had to organize Black women to participate in the struggle. So when Mm -hmm. I wrote my first essay in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I didn't even know what a primary research source was. Someone had to tell me, oh, this is what looking at an original document looks like. But I Mm -hmm. also think my lack of academic training was literally undisciplined. So I could go anywhere, do anything, interpret the data through the lens of what I had experienced versus what people told me things meant. And we're producing a rich scholarship now based on combining those lived experiences with primary and secondary sources and oral histories and things like that. But as we tell the history of the 20th century and women of color, there's going to have to be a whole recasting of what mattered, who did it, and who told the story and what it meant and how it's distorted our understanding of what took place. It's so important to have as many voices as possible, as you mentioned, Loretta, to sort of help write the narrative and also change the narrative. Lisa, can you talk to us about the oral interviews that you did and just the challenges as well as the opportunities in writing this more recent history? Well, I'd love also to hear from you on this topic, Robin. I've done over 120 oral histories, and I found the process of talking to feminists from around the country, from all kinds of backgrounds, really to be the most rewarding, enriching, illuminating experience of my academic career. I've been just consistently humbled by their understanding of movements, everything they've taught me about how social change happens. And it's been both inspiring and also really humbling as a scholar to go through this process. With this article, I wrote the article and then I sent the article out to all of the women who were quoted in it to just let them give them a heads up of what was coming down and to see if they had any issues with the way that they were represented. And then I received feedback from them. It really wasn't not much because of the way this article, I think maybe the book that I am writing goes delves more deeply into individual history in a way that an article can't or this article could not. But I received feedback from some of them that helped me to clarify things about their positions or maybe their backgrounds a little bit. And it was a really wonderful give and take that I was nervous about sending it to them, I have to say. Um, it turned out to be very affirming and I was able to get in very interesting conversations with them about the way that I was representing their history. And I don't anticipate the future necessarily being all smooth sailing, to be honest. I'm sure there might come moments when an activist is not happy with the way that I've told the story. And I'm going to have to deal with that kind of a contradiction. I don't know. Have you dealt with that at all, Robin, in your work? Well, my work is on the 1960s and radical Black protests. So I try to interview as many people as I can, really to help complicate the narrative that is out there that oftentimes excludes radical women. Yeah. So it's been exciting on the one hand, getting to know people, people coming alive from the pages of history, 
It's also been challenging because sometimes, you know, there's a sense that scholars are extracting information. We are professionals. We have titles. We have time. We have resources. We have funds. And oftentimes activists, especially lifelong activists, have paid high economic prices for their participation and dedication to social movements. So struggling to find a balance between the type of support that you can provide as a scholar who is not just trying to extract a story or to get a quote or to conduct an oral history, but is also interested in really building a long-term relationship and supporting you know, an activist through whatever projects or events or visions that they may have for where they want to go. So that's what I found in my scholarship to be helpful. So I've developed long-term relationships with activists. I've become involved in movements that they have become involved in that are near and dear to my heart as well. And it's been a process that has been very different from the notions of objectivity and distance that I learned about way back in graduate school. I think the stakes are high when you're conducting oral histories and the responsibilities are high as well. And yes, sometimes you have an interpretation that differs from maybe what people are comfortable hearing or would like to remember about the past. However, scholars, I do believe that we have to kind of find that balance between finding multiple perspectives on an event or time period or movement and also staying true to our commitment to providing a lens on the past that is rooted in a variety of of sources. Now, Loretta, I know that you are probably oftentimes contacted because of your long and continuing activist history. People are probably phoning you or trying to email you for interviews (laughs) all the time. How have you managed? I know you've also conducted interviews as well. Well, I've been fortunate enough to work with the Sophia Smith Collection at Smith College to conduct oral histories because they first came to collect my story in my archives. And then I asked the question, well, what other women of color are you collecting? And they didn't have a satisfactory answer for me. And so I asked them for the last 15 years, have worked to make sure that oral histories are done to make sure women of color stories are in the archives so that future historians and future researchers can have access to that information. So that's the process by which I learned the importance of evidence and keeping our records and sharing our stories and documenting what we do because so much activism was undocumented. We were too busy working to worry about making historical footprints. And now I'm looking at the Laguna, the lack of evidence that we provided that now means that when people are writing stories, they're not necessarily getting it right. And it's not that they don't want to get it right. We didn't provide the evidence. And so I'm trying to fill those gaps as much as I can. Yeah, I get interviewed at least once a week by a graduate student or somebody who's trying to uh, fill those gaps for us. And so it's It's privileged that I still have the cognitive abilities to remember some things. But, of course, when you're talking about 50 years, you've forgotten a lot. (laughs) So I think that we're really finally making sure that the activist community 
knows the importance of keeping records. Now, I do want to say one thing about that because I experienced this at Sister Song. I became very devoted to making sure everything Sister Song was documented and sent to the archives of Smith College and everything. When my successor took over, Monica Simpson, all of a sudden, all the records became digitized. And so they were threatening to throw out boxes and file cabinets of papers, and I had to do an intervention and say, no, 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 just because I don't use paper anymore, you can't dispose of these records. Let's handle them in a different way. And so we're having to deal with the fact that newer activists don't privilege the paper. And so we're going to have to do some interventions on that to make sure that these records are not destroyed just through not knowing to preserve them. I think one of the things that historians are really grappling with is how to preserve correspondence now in the age of email. It was interesting for me to be studying 1995. It was a moment when people still printed out their emails. So I have in the archive, I don't know if you remember that paper, it was white paper, and it had little holes on either side that you could kind of tear off. That was the kind of paper people were printing out, not just emails, but whole conversations happening on listservs. So it was so new at the time, and people still cared about paper so much that there was this printed copy of quite a bit of the communication that was happening online. And I think, though, clearly, if doing research just even on 2005, for example, I think that a lot of that would probably be gone. Well, I wanted to maybe bring our conversation to a close by thinking about what are the stakes for this history? I think we've talked a little bit about how your work speaks to the scholarly literature and how it fills gaps. We've talked about what it means in terms of oral histories and collections. Why does the larger society need to read this article? Typically, history journal articles don't make it outside of a specialized audience, yet this seems so important to me. What does it have to offer to the general reader? One of the takeaways that I think is very important about the article that speaks to broader concerns of our day is that, as Loretta pointed out, one of the things that happened to U.S. activists when they engaged in the global arena, when they went to the Beijing conference, and met people doing all kinds of activism, both in the United States and around the entire world, is that they, their eyes were opened, and they learned, and they found out that, in fact, it really goes against our idea of U.S. feminists thinking they know best and telling the other people they knew what to do. A lot of them understood that this was a problematic history and that they had to go into this conference with a different kind of attitude and with a very open mind. I don't think they expected to see that their own analyses, because they had been so focused on the U.S., were in fact kind of behind the analyses of people in the rest of the world who were analyzing social change and globalization and neoliberalism they were analyzing these forces that were affecting all of our lives. They were analyzing them on a, in a global way. And the Americans had mostly, many of them had been focused narrowly on the U.S. And to encounter people from all over the world who were thinking strategically and thinking globally about larger forces, forces outside of their own nations that were affecting 
people's daily lives was really transformative and was something that they then carried back with them and applied to their work here. And I think, you know, everyone, a lot of people in the historical profession have now made what we call maybe a global turn or taken transnational lenses to the history that they're doing. I think that these women who went to this conference and who were engaged generally in activism that had a global dimension, they weren't just doing this because it was like a new trend in historiography, right? Because they could get something published if they did it this way. They were doing it because they understood that the stakes of social change, that social change and the kind of political transformation they were committed to depended on it, depended on a global analysis. This was absolutely vital for the kinds of feminist interventions they wished to make. I think those are great last words. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciated the opportunity to reflect with you on your scholarship and to think with uh, activists like Loretta about the implications of what this means for how we think about women's history and what this also means outside of the academy for the here and now. This history is so important. I'm so glad that it is getting out. I'm grateful to both of you, Rob and Loretta, for your engagement with my work and for your own models of scholarship and activism that have been so influential to my own career. Thank you. And I wanted to just appreciate that the gulf between historians, academics, and activists seems to be narrowing, and those categories are not stark, but in fact, Historians are making history and activists are writing history. And I love the fact that we're in this golden age of blending it all together. Thank you all so much for this wonderful conversation. It's been tremendously instructive, and I've been listening in awe, frankly, to your life experiences, your activism, and your scholarship. We are so grateful that you were able to be with us today. And I know that our podcast listeners are going to enjoy it a great deal. This has been the Journal of American History podcast for fall 2018. Our guests have been Dr. Robin C. Spencer, Professor Loretta Ross, and Dr. Lisa Levenstein, whose article, A Social Movement for a Global Age, U.S. Feminism and the Beijing Women's Conference of 1995, appears in the September 2018 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you.